Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. My name is Jill Reese, and I'm the content and ministry coordinator for the lead pastor at High Point Church, and I am joined by our lead pastor, Nick Gibson. We're going to be talking about the Atlanta shooting and how to respond as Christians and as the church to this event, as well as to similar publicized tragic events. Nick, the point of this episode isn't for you to talk about about what happened in Atlanta, but could you frame the circumstances of the Atlanta shooting a little bit before we dive into talking about the response? Sure. So these are, I think, the relevant facts for us to consider. One is that a younger man shot and killed several people in multiple locations, um, apparently targeting massage parlors. Most of the employees in these places, um, especially in that part of the country, are going to be Asian women. And so they, they were the primary target. Um, he told police that he did that because they were fostering his own self-destruction at the hands of sexual addiction and pornography saturation in our culture that was destroying his life. Um, he and his family were apparently part of a conservative Baptist Christian church. The church condemned these actions fully, but I, I think it is important to note that connection for what we'll talk about later. Um, also that he'd been kicked out of a home where he was staying for addiction. And um, there appears to be some undiagnosed or untreated significant mental health issues with this guy. And he also, other people will, will say, well, you, listen, it's a gun crime. You need to mention that. And I, and I think that's fair to say. And so the, the killer used weapons capable of killing multiple people. Um, that is a semi-automatic firearm, right? With detachable magazines. So those are all like kind of relevant facts that people consider relevant for different reasons, depending on your temperament, your politics, your all kinds of different things. Does that make sense? Yeah. What are What have you noticed about the response to this event and other events like it? And could you give some examples? Yeah, so I think there's three responses that we get when events like this happen. The first is sort of the media response. And most of the media is made up of um, left-leaning or progressivist in their philosophy folks. And generally speaking, the narrative is um, there's violence. That violence was against some group. So we have to, we need to identify a group. Usually this is a minority group. And then say, this was the result of intergroup hatred without remainder. And the right thing to do is to cry this intergroup hatred and say that we need to stop this. If this keeps happening in America, we can never be a good place and so on. Generally speaking, the media on the right will do the opposite. They'll say, hey, this is a complicated thing. We should wait till we have more facts. It's kind of the like, wait till we know more. And this is probably more complicated. Now, the ironic thing is, is that this will be like flipped around in a different situation where the perpetrator is a minority person. So for example, in the shooting in Boulder this last week, um, that was done by a Syrian immigrant who has a very Muslim sounding name. Right. And so when CNN reported on this, it was all about what kind of gun he used and then how he was bullied in school by people, presumably white, right in um, LA County. And so this is a, like, because he could get a hold of guns and because he was bullied, he shot all these people, right? Whereas, you know, the the media on the right would usually say for something like this, hey, here's another Islamic immigrant who like Muslims are killing people and, you know, you just won't say anything because this guy is a minority group. However, in both of these profiles, these guys seem really similar. In fact, it's it's not unlikely that the Colorado shooting had some copycat effect from the Florida shooting, frankly. Um, these things tend to go in clusters for that reason. So you have a clearly mentally ill individual who has a kind of paranoia effect like going on in them, blaming others for what's going on, probably like what was mistreated in some way or not helped in a way that they really needed. Um, both became highly antisocial young men um, and that led them to hate other people and turn to gun violence in a way to deal with it, to punish other people for the pain that they had suffered. And uh, it, even though th- those things are all fairly similar with these cases, one case is a, hey, look at this anti-Asian hatred. And the other is, oh, isn't this terrible that gun violence happened in Boulder, Colorado? And so I, as, you know, as a person that tries to think clearly about stuff, to me, this is just so transparent. If you're halfway intelligent and following what's going on, um, that both of these are complicated incidents. Um and it's really sad to see these things happen, right? Okay, so the second, so the first thing is just how the media reports it. I think we need to be a little bit sophisticated in decoding what's being done here, okay? The second is, is that there's a strong emotional reaction often in the people who have been identified as the group. So when the media says, hey, these Asian people were killed, there's all this Asian violence, Asian, 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 people hate Asians. 
it's pretty normal. Asians are going to be like, yeah, people freaking hate us. <laughs> like, or they're going to feel really sad or angry, or they're going to have really intense emotions. Now, some of that I think is whipped up by the media because the, in this case, for example, I don't think that was good reporting. However, there is anti-Asian hatred in America. Like that's a real thing. It's happened. It's existed for more than a hundred years. It's a little bit more prevalent in the West because there's much larger Asian populations there. And so the anti-Asian hatred is much more like, it, it's like anti-black hatred in, in Mississippi. Like there's regional reasons for it in terms of how these races interacted. Similarly out West, especially in California. Like if you look at the Asian advocacy sites, the vast majority of these quote, quote hate crimes against Asians. I'm saying quotes because this includes like beating somebody up or killing them and yelling a negative Asian word at somebody in the street. Like those are all considered hate crimes under these counts, which I think is okay on one level because they are expressions of like hatred towards Asian people. But to call them a hate crime insinuates like a lot of harm. And I don't think you should equate like trying to beat somebody to death or killing someone with yelling a negative word at them. Does that make sense? Um, like I've had lots of negative things yelled at me because I was a Christian over the course of my life. And I don't consider those hate crimes. I consider them expressions of hatred that are bad and should receive social shame, mm -hmm. but not actions that are criminal for which someone should be entered into the criminal justice system. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, so there's, so there's that. So it's, it's, it's perfectly natural for Asian people to see this and be like, oh crap and have some kind of reaction. Oh, here it is again. I'm exhausted to hear this again. You, and you, you hear this from our black brothers and sisters. And I think probably our Muslim neighbors feel this way too. Um, and, and frankly, there's a lot of straight white men who feel this way right now as well. Um, and all kinds of people, you know, white women who want to, who like want to tell people what they think are, you know, they're going to be called a Karen and they're, you know, like there's all kinds of ways we have these like dynamics of like <laughs> disliking mm -hmm. large groups of people. But some of them are more dangerous than others. Right. And um, obviously, African-Americans feel like they're probably in the biggest category for that, or maybe or maybe gay people, right? Um, anyway, so then there's a third response, which I think is important too, which is w what I would say is the dismissive reaction response, right? So there's – so like if in the Atlanta shooting, if you're like a white person, the, white, the perpetrator in this case was a white guy, um, especially if you're a white male, especially if you're young, a young white male, right? Because most violence happens – is done by men under the age of 30 or something like that right it's like there's this very it's like 18 to 30 is like males do virtually all the violence in america right and so um you look at that and you're kind of like okay this guy was crazy like he was sexually addicted he like like he was untreated he like the system failed like you like all the things a liberal reporter would say if an african-american got involved in crime that, like white people will say about this guy, be like, listen, the system failed him. Like you shouldn't judge everybody, like etc. Right, and so there is this sort of like dismissive response, mm -hmm. and then these things all clash with each other, and create intergroup hatred. Right, so like the media reports back and forth against each other, the liberal and, and conservative media, right? Then people who are connected to that group or feel themselves as allies of that group will say, hey, you need to just listen. You need to affirm these feelings. These feelings are real, right? And then the dismissive folks will, will say, hey, but it's not, they may be real feelings, but they're not based on real facts. And our feelings that aren't based on real facts, like they're valid in that people have the right to feel whatever they feel, but they're not valid in that they, they don't create a true narrative by which we should all be responding. Right. And so if people say we need to outlaw guns or we need to like do something about racism in the schools, we need to change curriculums, we need to do all these policies based on the feelings these people are having. What you're saying is the feelings that they're having are true to reality such that they can order our actions as people, as policies and governmental things in the future, which means they are correct, which in this case would have been false. So I think a Christian has to like realize this swirl is going to happen every time, at least right now in our country. You're going to get cross-reporting. You're going to get a strong emotional reaction from the group that sees themselves as the affected group. And then you're going to get a dismissive response for people who feel counterattacked by being blamed for something they don't particularly like being blamed about. And isn't any more their fault than the people in the harmed group are directly connected to the people who were just harmed. Does that make sense? And the reason that's, in, I think that's really, anyway, I don't, I, I, we're going to analyze that in a minute, but I think those are the responses we see. And I think all of them are re, are mm -hmm. like human responses. All of them are, I think people are trying to do what they think is right. I think they're all authentic in that they are how a person is reacting in a mo how their emotions are really reacting in a situation. I think that in, in, like, so I don't want to like demonize any of those responses, 
But I do think that there are problems that those responses create and they produce considerable future harm. And if we don't use maturity and godliness and wisdom to deal with them, then it's going to make things worse rather than better. And that's the thing that I, I want. One, I want to see us honor the Lord and do what's true and good. And also I want to see us flourish in pursuing justice, right? So idolatry in the, in the, in the scriptures, mm-hmm. idolatry always leads to injustice. That which is a rival to God will always do things that provoke God. That's a huge thing in the book of Ezekiel, for example. And when we when we have an idolatry in our politics or in our emotions or in how we react or respond to things defensively, that's always going to lead to a provocation of others and of God. And and we we have to use faith to interrupt that cycle. One response that I've seen, um, and I'm sure that you've seen as well, um, is that is the response to um, the aspect of a story of sexual addiction and how he was treated in the church or not treated yeah. cor- correctly by the church. Could you talk a little bit about that di- that response? Yeah, there's a young man in our church who, um, to, I was just really proud of the way he handled this. I mean, he, he just like, he really, he felt very strongly, but he slowed down his emotional reaction enough to find out kind of what was going on. And as a young man who's struggling both with issues related to his sexuality and is himself Asian, he was like, well, which of these is the thing, you know? And one of the things I think that I agree with is he, he's like, you know, the we should pay attention to rising anti-Asian acts of hatred in this country because the numbers do seem to be up from last year, especially in major cities, right? Um, especially in California. But um, he's like, you know, a big a, the big story here is the way um, sexual addiction is treated in the church and in the wider culture, right? And I would say, I say both those are really important. For example, so let me do the wider culture first, then I'll hit on the church. Because I, I don't like it when people beat up on the church and they pretend the culture is fantastic. The culture is horrifically disgusting on this. The amount of sexual misuse, objectification, and destructive behavior that is affirmed and supported vehemently in our culture is beyond abusive. I mean, it's it's horrific. Okay, mm-hmm. the 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 affirmation of hookup culture, which must in human nature produce all kinds of dysfunction and violence and harm, is ridiculously insane. And the effects of the saturation of pornography, especially on young men who are overwhelmed by the testosterone in their systems, and um, their inferiority and their desire for women and all of that kind of stuff, it is a cocktail for human destruction. Okay, it's incredibly mm-hmm. destructive. All right. Now, in the church, you have this like protective reaction to that where the church is supposed to uphold sexual purity. And in upholding sexual purity, it often falls away from taking a therapeutic approach of saying um, of being both so that the church has to be both a institution of standards and a hospital. So it has to, on one sense, say, this is what's right and wrong. You need to try to live up to these things, right? And then secondly, it's supposed to have a spiritual theology of like helping people who are not able to lift up to those things for some reason to mm-hmm. be cared for, to be helped, to be understood, to be, right? And some some people, the infirmities that they will suffer from the sexual saturation and the abuse of our sexual abuse in our culture, which I attribute to a lot of things, um, sin in all human beings, but also just like the incredibly irresponsible views about sexuality being perpetrated on the American public and the world public, right? When that comes together with the demands of sexual purity in the church, it creates an incredibly difficult mm-hmm. experience, especially for young men, but really for everybody. I think I think you can comment on this for women if you want, but it's incredibly difficult for young men. Men are they're saturated in pornography, their whole sense of themselves masculinely, because there aren't other there aren't really other good ways to be men in our culture, to be distinctively men. There aren't a lot of physical trials or things that test your metal other than like football or like some kind of sport. But even some of those are kind of getting demonized now. So like if if you can't do that, then what? Then basically it's your capacity to get a woman to be interested enough in you to have sex with you is basically it. That like you're good enough for her to offer her fertility to you, right? So that's this incredibly strong psychological drive. And men are just overwhelmed by this, especially when like we let them have computers in the room when they're eight years old. And when we like, we do all kinds of things that foster the sexual dysfunction. Right. And then we cluster them all together in schools where like all these 12 year old boys are with all these 12 year old boys and there's no men around. 
And those men aren't allowed to teach them how to be men because our liberality is so strong that we can't have gender roles because we don't even know if we have genders. Like all that stuff like just feeds on each other. And then the church says, hey, you've got to be pure. Like Jesus said, you have to learn to, like it says in First Thessalonians 4, learn to control your vessel. Like the like your body's like a ship and you've got to be able to steer that thing and, and specifically sexually. And it turns out that there's a lot of younger men that just like they really, 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 really struggle with that. And the church can often say, look, here's the standard. It's your job to live up to it. And we just, the church oftentimes isn't very understanding when men can't, don't, they hide things. They're filled with shame. They feel, they, they experience what we call symptoms of addiction and they don't know how to get over it. We don't have very sophisticated methods for, for, for treating people and for supporting people. And there's a lot of churches that just don't have a, don't have a doctrine of infirmity, right? Like, so there are sins of presumption. Mm-hmm. Like you could not do them. You have the self-control and ability to not do them. You have the strength to say no. You just don't say no, right? And then there's sins of infirmity where like, you know it's wrong. You don't want to do it, but you do it. And you're so angry at yourself and so filled with shame that you did it. There's actually a, a passage in the Bible that specifically talks about this in Romans chapter seven, where the apostle Paul talks about salvation and receiving salvation and being a Christian. And then he gets to chapter seven. And he's like, for some reason, I do all these things I don't want to do. And he refers to that as wretchedness, to be both evil and weak, to do what you know is wrong, that is to be evil, and to not be able or strong enough to stop yourself, which is wretchedness. And scripture teaches that the response to this is to really believe the gospel, to know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and we can be saved from this wretchedness, this body of death, by the death of Christ. That is, that we are accepted by God in our infirmities and in our failures and in our weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And the way we live out of that is not by applying the shame of the law to us, which we do deserve, but that's been put away in Jesus. It says the first verse of chapter eight is there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Like if you are a believer and you're caught in some kind of sin and you're trying to stop and you feel like you can't do it and you feel just completely filled with shame because you just suck, that is that feeling of wretchedness. Read Romans seven and you will identify with it. You'll be like, that's me. I feel wretched. Yes. Okay. Point one, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you believe in Christ, if you admit these things are wrong, you're not lying to yourself or pretending they're not wrong. Right. And you're like, I want to be free of this. I just, I'm too, I don't know why I can't overcome this in my weakness. And you, you turn him, there's no condemnation for you. You are, you have already died in the death of Christ and Christ has already performed sexually for you. That is with withheld himself from sinful sexual actions on your behalf in the cross and you are one with him. And then secondly, he calls you to live the new life of the spirit, to pursue the goods that are in Christ as fully as you can without fear of failure, knowing that you're loved and accepted by him, but doing so boldly with all the courage you can muster. And maybe your successes won't be in the areas of sexual addiction or overcoming pornography in the short run. Like do the best you can, love your neighbor, love the people put in front of you, do every good that you can in Jesus name, seeking to walk by the spirit and, and these, and strength will build in you over time and your infirmities will become less and you will grow stronger in the spirit and you'll begin to overcome these weaknesses and, and therefore the wretchedness. Um, and that process of sanctification mm-hmm. sometimes takes years for some people it's decades um, and the church is supposed to hang with people who are in those infirmities and weaknesses. I mean, the Bible literally says, bear with each other's infirmities and weaknesses. And infirmities aren't just like bad constitution that you get colds or you get sick a lot, like in being infirmed in a health sense. An infirmity is a weakness in a human being that leads to them being unable to do what a healthy human is supposed to be able to do in their maturity. Mm-hmm. And that can be a character infirmity or a temperamental infirmity or an infirmity that comes from a trauma or a wound. And so sometimes these like right. the, the church they were from was like a very conservative Baptist church. And I don't want to tell you what that church did or didn't do. And I don't I can't tell you why this guy got kicked out of the place he was in. I mean, sometimes these places have to kick people out. I don't I I can't judge them. What I can say for me is, and for some of the churches I've been in in contact with in my life, we do most churches don't do a good job of both. I know churches that are like very understanding about sexual sin and they do a terrible job of holding up the standard of what God says we should do sexually. And I know other churches that hold up a really good standard for what we should do sexually and are really bad at the therapeutic and hospital part of it. 
And based on the doctrinal stance of this church, I would suspect that that church was in the second group. A lot of attractional evangelical churches in the present are in that first group. They just leave the whole thing alone. Don't touch it. And I've, I've had, I've had pastors of certain racial groups tell me we don't even talk about sex at all in our church, period, full stop. We just mm-hmm. don't broach the thing because culturally it's impossible. And I, I can't judge those people yeah. because, because I, they're Jesus servant, not mine. And that right. seems short-sighted. Um, but I, I, I don't want to, I, I mean, I, hopefully that bothers them. Hopefully they're trying to find a way to talk about that in their community. I, I just, I, I, you know, I've just tried to give them as many resources as I can yeah. and do their best. But at high point, what we're trying to do, and I think this is what all churches should do, is you have to tell the truth about what God says about sexuality. It's too important a part of our lives to not talk about what he, God thinks freedom is, what God thinks flourishing is, what God thinks our purpose is and our good is in relationship to sexuality. And that includes sexual purity. And at the same time, especially in a culture like ours that is so sexually saturated, with pornography and disgusting ways in which people brutalize each other in ways that are accepted. There's just a few ways you can't brutalize each other. That is like forcible rape, certain things like sexual assault, like in Christian faith, like premarital sex is sexual brutalization because it Mm -hmm. precipitates abandonment. Right? So like Christians have to realize that we live in a culture that's horrifically awful. Let me just say one more thing before you jump in. I think one of the best biblical narratives on this is the book of first Corinthians. Corinth was a place that was just ritual prostitution was just part of every man's life. Young men went to prostitutes as soon as they were sexually mature. That was a huge part of life in that pagan city. And Paul comes in and brings the gospel into Corinth in that context. And he, a absolutely tells them what they can and can't do sexually. He doesn't hold pullback at all, but then sexual, then, then secondly, in terms of the sexual sin that's rampant inside the church, he calls them brothers. He doesn't tell them they're not believers. And he patiently explains to them why this behavior is not okay, why it's theologically wrong, how Jesus wants to lead them out of it, what the purpose is, and he hangs with them in this process. And I think that that's incredi- an incredibly good example in the scriptures of a strong standard and a non-judgmental therapeutic approach from this great pastor. We'll talk a little bit more about some of the other responses and how what we keep in and what we leave from those responses. But in regards to sexuality, we're just, you were talking about some of our response and what we should t- keep and leave. And what I took from that was first that recognize in yourself, like when some an event like this happens, that both we could be both the perpetrator and the victim. And so, yeah. yes, we have infirmities. And yes, we have things that might victimize us and have hurt us in the past. And those things are real <laughs> and need to be grappled with. Um, but also we mm-hmm. could be the perpetrator because we are responsible for the ways we act even out of our infirmities. Um, and that's mm-hmm. that's what we see in these responses. We see that there's not that tension held. We are blaming people for being one or the other and not both um, and not seeing them as both. And so I think that's really important to take regarding right. sexuality as well as we think about it as the church. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the purpose of the law is to force you to take responsibility. Right? That's the main purpose of the law, for you to face that, like, this is your responsibility. Yeah, you and I have had uh, have struggled with yeah. people who are hurt and they're dealing with their traumas and they don't want to take responsibility for what they're doing in their pain. Right, and that isn't healing either. Taking responsibility is healing. Because you can see that you can be different um, and you can change. So there's a lot to think through with discernment in that conversation. So thank you for leading us through some of that. You mentioned three other responses um, earlier in the podcast. And how should we be thinking about what do we keep from those, especially in terms of lament um, and that response? And what should we change? Yeah, I, I've really struggled with this. So I'm, I'm going to share a thought that is not done. Okay, so I, okay. I've been thinking about this for a while and, and I'm working on it. So I'd love to get some responses from people who are listening. But um, I struggle with the idea that lament can be authentic when there's no personal connection. Right. So, um, so in a country of 350 million people, if seven people are brutally killed more than a thousand miles away from me, 
even if I'm part of their racial group or some, or there's some group that I'm a part of that they're a part of, can I authentically lament them? Right. And my answer to this is, I think the answer is no to that question. I don't think most of what was happening with people lamenting the death of George Floyd was that they were literally lamenting the death of the man, George Floyd. I don't think that's what's really happening. And I think that we have to learn to be honest about that psychologically and emotionally. Now, I think it's, I don't, I'm not saying that like nobody should ever have said that. I'm, I'm, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, I don't think what's happening there is that everybody is lamenting the man, George Floyd, or lamenting the women who were killed in these massage parlors. I think that we are calling lament some a different thing, right? And ex, an, like an experience of our own fear and our own sense of mortality and fear that this could happen to us, our, um, our renegotiation of facing the depravity of human beings, our terror at the fact that these things can be seemingly random, and that you can get killed by people who you have no meaningful connection to because somehow they have made some connection to you as a perpetrator of some evil, which is one of the reasons why people do fear racism because like you're just a race and like somebody could kill you for that. Right. And so I, I, or I think it's possible that people could be lamenting the state of their country or what they think is the state of humanity. And that that is a sad thing. I think it's okay to hate the curse and they're in, in like hate evil. But sometimes I think that we confuse this idea of lament that like, like lament is in, in a sense, the loss of something um, to the extent to which it's mourning. You're mourning the person that was lost and you just, you can't mourn a person you didn't know you had no connection with. All you can, all you can mourn is the symbolic nature of that person as it relates to a sociological thing you don't like or fear. And how that relates to your anxiety. And so I think for a lot of people, it feels like really mature to say, yeah, I'm lamenting the death of this person or this group of people or this event. But really what you're doing is you're facing your own fear and anxiety, your own weakness, and your own um, sense of being out of control and so on. It's not really mourning. You're not letting go someone who you had a connection with. That's not what's happening. What's happening is, is you're facing your own anxieties, fears, and hurts. And that's a different psychological process. And it requires different treatments and like different ways of facing it and different ways of thinking and feeling about it. And I think that calling it lament when it's not really lament, as far as I can tell, seems very strange to me. And then it also hurts people who feel like they should lament because everybody's saying that they should. And they realize they can't authentically do that. They didn't know George Floyd. They don't know these women. They didn't know the people who got shot in Boulder, Colorado. They, they have no connection to them personally. And they can't personally mourn the loss of their human connection with them in the meaningful place those people held in their lives. They can't. It's not possible. And I think to put that on somebody emotionally can harm them, right? And increase their sense of inferiority and in the feeling that they are, they are themselves psychologically unhealthy when you're actually telling them to do something that is on the face of it or psychologically unhealthy. And remember, I'm not saying that an emotional, a deep, painful emotional reaction in which you're, quote, coping with or processing this is wrong. I just think calling it and thinking that it's mourning or lament is probably wrong. Does that make sense? Yeah. And what I heard you say was that there's, there's other emotions or human responses that it actually might be instead of lament right. that are, and you need to recognize what it is so that you can sort through it. It might be fear um, for your right. own safety or people uh, that you care about, or it might be um, anger at injustice in the world and sin. And right. yeah, it might be sadness too, but in order to appropriately um, process the emotion, you have to know what it is. And know why you're feeling it. And, and most of the time, human beings, if we can believe that we're doing something emotionally that is deep and mature and great and morally good, we would rather feel that than realize the emotions that we have are coming from our own emotional hurts, weaknesses, infirmities, fears, anxieties, and so on, right? But that's what it is, I think. And I think calling it something else that's like this noble mourning, I just, I think that's probably unhelpful. I, you know, like if I was, 
I just, I feel like when George Floyd was killed, it it like raised everybody's anxiety and anger and brought out their own experiences of racism and how like what they think about the country and how they feel like they were being treated and all that. And so like he was a symbol. That's a symbol, right? And I think that we should know we're doing that, or it does bad things to us all. And I think it's okay. I think it's okay for George Floyd to be a symbol. I think it's fine. Um, I think it should, he should symbolize that which he he is and is a symbol for, and and that those those things we're using him as a symbol are in fact accurate. But I, I don't. I think it's okay for a person to be a symbol. I think we do that all the time as people as human beings. I mean, George Washington's a symbol. I mean, we have all kinds of human symbols. So you were talking about how what to change about our response compared to what we're told we should how we should be responding what is the best response for each of us in the and for the church so like should yeah, we reach me, out to people what what are some things that we can do when this type of event happens okay let me just give two i'm going to i'm going to offend progressives first and then i'm going to offend conservative people next okay so um one i don't i do not think it is wise to fall into the progressive grouping and identity politics of these things. And I don't think that the response, all we need to do here is listen. People should emote and we should listen. I actually don't think that's the right psychological response or the way we should actually support people. Okay. So first, I think what people need to understand is that human beings have a beneficial internal um, programming, let's say, where we determine by very subtle and complicated sets of cues who is for us and who is against us, who is a threat and who is an ally. You can't get rid of that programming in human beings and you shouldn't try, right? It's very important that we have the ability to tell who's on our team and who's not on our team, who's for us, who's against us, who will help us and who will hurt us, right? And little kids develop that at like a very young age, right? And dogs and cats can like tell like who's for us and who's against us. Sometimes they're wrong and the software needs updating, but it's incredibly important. Okay. Now this is the same software that produces prejudices and racisms and so on, because it's always looking for heuristics or shortcuts because the world is full of billions of data points and millions of decisions that our mind is making. And if we can't create internal mental shortcuts, our mind literally, our bodies cannot produce enough energy for the processing power it takes for our brains to make all these decisions, right? That's why psychologists talk about us having quick thinking and slow thinking operations in our minds emotionally. Most of our decisions, the vast majority of our decisions are made immediately based on already existing internal heuristics, right? And so people talk about these as implicit biases, right? That's what they are. They're predetermined decisions, so that in new cases that come up, we can make immediate internal decisions about who's for us and who's against us. Okay. Now, the problem with that is that if you say, right, we have to like just erase all of that, it it has a couple of really big problems. The first is it's not possible. You can't erase people's in-group, out-group software processing. And you shouldn't want to, right? And so Dealing with questions of like who's good and who's bad, who's in and who's out is a tension where we have to be intentionally updating our data and how we think about it with our slow thinking, okay? But you can't actually get rid of these processes. Human beings will always have immediate reactions as to who's an in-group and who's an out-group. What that means is, is that if you encourage people to be angry at another group and increasingly act in an antisocial way towards them, what's going to happen in their in-group, out-group, internal brain processing as a human creature? They're going to say, that's an outgroup person, right? And so what happens is if like, if you tell young black men that like white people hate them, right? What's going to happen? Well, in their in-group, outgroup processing, they're going to see white people as outgroup people and people who want to hurt them. What you naturally do is you act defensively towards such people. Those people then pick that up with the social cues human beings pick up things. And they go, oh, those people are against me. They're an outgroup. What happens is identity politics or in-grouping and out-grouping people in whatever way you do it creates and perpetuates and makes incredibly worse in-grouping and out-grouping among people's reactive behaviors in like very biologically necessary and incredibly detrimental ways. The Western solution to this has been liberalism. The idea that we'll all agree to leave each other alone and to interact cooperatively as we choose. That's been the solution to us all killing each other tribally and tearing each other apart. 
And it's incredibly important. And it's the only way we've devised in human history, other than faith in Jesus, to deal with this really intense in-group, out-group faculties in human beings, which is a necessary and ineradicable software in the human creature. Once you realize that just you, you need to just get rid of the whole identity thing, full stop. Now, I'm not saying we can't talk about race or any of those things. Um, intersectional considerations, that is race, gender, um, sexual orientation, temperament, all you know, background, history, culture, nationality, all that kind of stuff, language. Those are all super important in human life. They're super important. We have to talk about them. We should research them. I'm not saying anything like that, that we should do that. But there are at least three levels of human anal- of human analysis we should always be going through. There is the universal human one. How are we all the same in this? Right? Then there's the intersectional one. How are our di- how do our differences make our experience of this different? And then there is the individual one. How am I supposed to take responsibility and as the person that I am to deal with and handle this as an individual human being with the moral responsibilities that I have? Right. And if we only do that second and middle one, our analysis will be incredibly inhuman and produce incredibly divisive, tribal, and terrible results. Okay. So that so the intersectional level of analysis is incredibly important, but is one of three levels of analysis you must engage in to be a mature human being. Okay. Now, listening. So then what should you do when somebody is reacting or responding? to a intersectional or like a, like, you know, Asian people, Asian women were attacked here, like and, and Asian women or Asian people just like, Oh my God, like this is terrible. Right now, the first response, if you're not in their in group and you aren't like programmed to be woke is to be dismissive because you'll say, wait, if you're the good guy or you're the victim, then I'm the bad guy or the perpetrator. Well, I don't want to be the bad guy or the perpetrator. So how do I exonerate myself? Right. And so you look for evidence to exonerate yourself. That evidence usually exists. Right. And so you, you take that and you tell the person who's hurt, Hey, this evidence exists. I'm not the bad guy. Don't convict me. Right. That doesn't usually help because it like, it makes people feel dismissed, right? Like that they don't matter that you're all that you don't care about them. You just care about yourself because that's what you are doing. You're defending yourself. Right now. So woke people will come in and say, okay, so here's what you should do. You need to listen friends. You just need to shut up and you need to listen. Okay. Now that I think is actually one step better than being dismissive, right? The problem is, is that that's actually not the moral action of a loving other person when another person is in turmoil, right? The reason why being a listener sounds right is because it's the first thing that you should do when somebody's expressing something. And it may be the only constructive thing you can do in that moment. So if somebody's emotionally flooded, they're just like, they're just reacting and they're pouring out emotion, whether it's moral or immoral, true or false. Oftentimes it doesn't do any good to tell them that they're wrong, but they might be totally wrong, right? Like anybody who's like been a parent knows this. Like you get a kid who feels really strongly. They're just kind of raging. You know that they are full of CRAP. Like, like they are, they're so off base. It's just nutty. Right. And but you can't really tell them that right then, right? Then they need to vent and they need to know you hear them and you can like dress them down, but all they're going to hear is you don't care and you're not listening to me. And so you just kind of wait. You're like, darling, I, I see how upset you are. I feel like I understand the argument you're making. You just told me this and you feel very strongly about it. And I'm going to think about that. Right. And then when they're not flooded emotionally, you can come back around and be like, okay, listen, and you you get this in like business courses and stuff like that where they'll say, look, when somebody comes and complains against your business and they're like livid, you don't tell them right then that they're wrong. You show that you've listened and you show that you understand and have heard them, right? Now, it's important because that does not mean they're right. In most cases, they will be wrong because we process things in incredibly selfish ways. We don't have the information we need to make decisions and we are reactive creatures and we live in a chronically anxious society that immediately reacts and we are being invited by media and politicians and leaders and educators to be highly reactive beings. And we're actually being told that that's that's mature, authentic, and noble. And that is a lie. It is fostering human immaturity and shallowness. Okay. But sometimes that's the best thing to do is to listen to people even when they're wrong and completely off base. Now, that's in Christian faith, that is not a faithful presence to just do that and that's it. 
right? A Christian who is loving has to be both gracious and truthful. They listen graciously, but the time for truth must come at some point, right? And that has to happen. And you can't, if you shield yourself from hearing the truth because you're angry, you are being emotionally immature. And to invite whole swaths of intersectional groups to give themselves to the, like using their anger or their their being upset or their hurt as a weapon to cause people to accept things to be true that aren't true. Or to just say, we can't talk about this. It shouldn't even be investigated. Um, is a highly immature because it's a highly manipulative action, right? And you see this from parenting to um, marriage counseling. I've seen this so much in marriage counseling where somebody knows that they're in the wrong. And so they blow up and they get angry and say, you're not listening to me. And you're like, to the point where now we use like intersectional defense language to become new perpetrators. So you can take like, you can always beat your husband if you're a woman. If you say his explanation of how he's feeling is gaslighting. You just call it gaslighting, right? And now he's not only the perpetrator, he's in denial that he's a perpetrator and he just doesn't get it. And he's probably therefore misogynist, right? Well, gaslighting is a, de- is a defined thing. It's like when you have been a perpetrator and then you describe to the victim why they are wrong to feel victimized. Well, that, that's something you have to show. You don't, you don't get to just say it, right? So learn. So what, what people need from you is a, um, is a non-anxious presence and then a prudent response, a non-anxious presence and a prudent response, right? So they need you to be calm and to listen to them, right? And to see that there's no anxiety in you, you can accept them for who they are. You don't feel threatened by them. You don't have to defend yourself and therefore be dismissive. And if they just rage and they're and then great. And if they're an emotionally mature, mature person, they'll say, look, I just need to rage for a minute at you right now. Can you just listen to me? I know that this may not all be true. I know that I may be half baked. This is how I feel right now. And you just go, just go ahead and react to me. It's fine. Okay. That's fine. But then you have to choose a prudent response, which is to say, man, that must be really hard. I, I don't know what to tell you. Like, maybe you don't know. So you just, I don't know what to tell you. It may be like, do you feel like you know enough to feel like this is the truth that you're, you're having the right reaction? Or do you think you're just having a really strong reaction right now, you know, or, or whatever. But the problem we have is, is that well, the reason why we have counselors, for example, and pastors is you want people who are like professional at prudently responding to these kinds of crises. And not everybody who comments on Facebook is a highly developed, mature, wise, and prudent person. And so this can create problems when people choose to vent on social media or to people that um, they don't know are mature, prudent, godly, Mm -hmm. balanced people. Does that make sense? So anyway, so yes. So one is you have to reject the identity politics of this. It's a terrible, divisive thing that produces exponentially and geometrically increasingly bad results between people, making them enemies. And secondly, you need to be a non, not just, don't be dismissive. And don't just be a listener, but be a non-anxious presence who then listens and then responds prudently to a person. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I think that's the most important thing yeah. on that side. Yeah, that's so important. Um, the non-anxious presence reminds me of when you were talking about how our natural reaction is to be defensive, even if we think we are um, being authentic, we're often being de- defensive, which is selfish and not actually listening <laughs> to the person um, because we're thinking about how it affects us. Their emotion affects mm-hmm. us instead of how they're actually feeling. And so listening for their emotion can help you figure out how to respond prudently. If you're listening for, mm-hmm. oh, they, they're probably angry or they're probably sad mm-hmm. in what they might be saying a lot of other things. But um, yeah. I think I think that's really important that you can not respond defensively. You can listen and focus your attention on what they're saying and actually be a better listener than if you're just listening for listening's sake. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. You listen, you'll hear people all the time who will say things like really mean things. And then after they're upset, like later on, you'll be like, do you mean this? You said this, do you mean, and they're like, no, I didn't mean that. And you want to be like, well then don't say it. Right. <laughs> but like, 
you know, like everybody wants other people to behave in optimal ways and then not have to themselves. And so like this gets back to the whole church thing, like holding up a standard and then being a hospital. Like that's true for all our behaviors. Like we want mm-hmm. other people to act optimally and we don't want to have to. So like, yeah, the, the fact is, is that people are going to behave unoptimally. That's just, that's life. Like that, you're going to be around other humans. That's just what's going to happen. And so you have to be able to accept infirmity. And I, honestly, I think being willing to to accept human infirmity is a much better philosophy of life than the ideology that everything should be the way it should be. Yeah. Do you want to add anything else before we wrap up? Yeah, I said I wanted to like attack conservative people too. Um, there is a re- there's a really, really strong urge if you are more conservatively minded to be dismissive of things and to think that the argument against things is better than it is or that it's more relevant than it is. And and it's, it's there's a really strong tendency among conservatively minded people to want to minimize that second level of analysis, the the intersectional one, the like the thing about our differences. And the, and just analyze things on that we're all humans and that we all have individual responsibilities. And those are the only relevant things. And they're not they're not the only relevant things. Right? The fact I mean I can I can tell in my everyday life that the fact that I'm a man and my wife is a woman makes things different for us. We're both human. We both have individual responsibilities. Our lives are not the same and our lives are not the same partly because she's a woman and I'm a man. It's just true. It's a true. It's, I mean, like I'd have to like stick my head in a couch to, to not observe that. And the differences of people's racial background, their, their racial identities, their cultural backgrounds, their, um, their sexual temperaments or orientations, their, um, what their family was like, their hurts, their strengths, um, what has been invested in them or not invested in them, what breaks they've gotten over the course of life, what harms. I mean, all these things are these intersections of differences between us that really do matter in our lives. And so being able to try to understand what it's like to be another person in those differences is very important in listening graciously. To really be a gracious person is to allow the other person to be that other person and not try to get them to be more like you. And so if I'm talking to a person who's different than me and all those, that second level of things, man, I really have to listen hard to try to figure out what's different in their experience. So when I invite them back into relationship through our shared humanity and our responsibility towards one another as individuals, I'm not being reductive or dismissive or or like uncaring towards those differences. And I think that that's part of Christian love, right? That in Christ, there's no division on the basis of those intersectional differences, but those intersectional differences exist and they matter in people's lives and how they apply, live out the gospel and in what things they have to overcome and in what benefits or privileges or, um, or inordinate strengths they tend to have. So, you know, I think that I think that there's there's a conservative reaction against things that are connected to quote wokeness that can easily be rejected when they shouldn't be. These are all in the Bible, right? All these like cultural differences and how they matter and that sort of stuff. Differences between gender and how those things matter. That that's all in Scripture. I, it's not talked about the same way, right? But it's there and it matters. So I think it's really important on the conservative side of things to to just be really careful about. That and and the other thing too is is that conservatives in modern in modern America have developed their own identity politics, right? Like it, there used to be this divide between essentially conservative liberals small L and liberal Democrats small L. Both believed in liberalism. That is, we all cooperated in voluntary societies and civil society in ways in which we choose, and we all agreed to leave each other alone in a lot of ways so that we could foster our own lives. Both of these groups have moved in their extremes towards a illiberal version of their ideology, right? Conservatism tends to move to a kind of nativism, which we t- we we're, we're call it, we call nationalism right now. Nationalism can mean patriotism, or it can mean nativism, right? You're that some people in our country are part of our country, and some people in our country are not part of our country. Does that make sense? Um, and to the extent to which conservatism moves into nativism, right? We are the country, and those other people in our country are not our country. Right, even though they may be citizens and believe in the ideals of America, just be different culturally. Right, then um, there there is a identity politics 
of the right, which is a kind of nativism, which we have to, which is just, I mean, it's just as disgusting as the divisive identity politics of the American left. And you can be a Christian Democrat and you should reject the identity politics of the left and how it tells you to listen to people and how it tells you to relate to people in ways that are immature. And if you're a Republican, that's fine, right? There are lots of Christian reasons to be Republican too, but there is a nativism and a, and a incipient racism related to that um, of the old style rather than the new style of racism. And you have to reject that too. And that tends to be dismissive in its reaction to these tragic events and so on. Does that make sense? And so um, we're still not going to agree. But if we don't use our disagreements to stoke the fire of interpersonal hatred based on people's in-group, out-group, natural human response, we'll be a lot better off. And in the midst of all of that, the only final solution to these issues of hatred and wretchedness is the life-giving power of the death and resurrection of Christ, our reception of his forgiveness in his death, in his murder at the hands of evil men, and our receiving of his spirit who gives life, leads us to forgive, brings healing, creates real fellowship between people of profound intersectional difference, and leads us to take personal responsibility for what we should so that we can be healed and become emotionally mature and overcome these infirmities. Ultimately, that is the only real final solution. But we can also not we can also not participate in making it worse in the world by how we are drawn into worldliness, you know, which is very attractive right now. And yeah. we, there's a lot of pressure to conform to it. Yep. Yeah. 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 There's so much more I want to say about this stuff, but yeah. we got to stop at some point, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Engage and Equip. If you liked this episode, rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform and share this podcast with a friend. If there's a topic you'd like us to discuss, send it to podcast at highpointchurch.org. Otherwise, we'll see you in the next episode.